Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 15th, 2011, and my guest is George Will, author and syndicated columnist. George, welcome to Econ Talk. Glad to be with you. I'd like to start with your biography. Tell us how your career started and how you got to where you are. Well, I grew up in Champaign, Illinois. I was a faculty brat. My father was a professor of philosophy at the University of Illinois. Uh, I went away to school at Trinity College in Hartford, which I could afford to do only because a Trinity alumnus had uh, set aside scholarship money for Illinois students. After Trinity, I went to Oxford for two years, studying what's called PPE, Politics, Philosophy, and Economics. Uh, leaving Oxford, I, I didn't know quite what I wanted to do, so I applied to law school and to Princeton in philosophy. And I went to Princeton because it was midway between two National League cities, which will give you a <laughs> sense of how fundamentally unserious I was as a scholar. I got a Ph.D. in three years and went off to teach, intending to make a career of it, uh, and taught for a year at Michigan State University and then at the University of Toronto. And I went to uh, Michigan State in the fall of 67, Toronto in the fall of 68. In the fall of 69, Everett Dirksen died, Illinois senator who was minority leader of the Senate then for the Republicans. I remember him. And the uh, Republicans shuffled their leadership, and a Colorado senator named Gordon Hallett, of whom I had never heard, became third-ranking Republican in the Senate and chairman of the Policy Committee. He decided he wanted to hire to write for him a Republican academic, and there weren't any. This was the late 1960s. I was the only one in North America, and I was in Canada. But through serendipity, he heard about me, and um, I got to Washington and and, uh, went to work for him in January 1970 through Vietnam, Kent State, Watergate, the beginnings of, well, yeah, the beginnings of Watergate. In uh, the summer of 72, when my senator was up, I decided that three years was going to be enough and I wanted to move on. And like so many people who come to Washington, I never looked back, uh, decided to stay. So I called Bill Buckley and said, uh, who I knew vaguely and had written a couple things for National Review, and I said, National Review needs a Washington editor. And Bill, as was his wont, essentially said, "Uh, you're right, I do, and you're it. Uh, so, uh, and at that time, uh, Agnew was going around the country mow-mowing the press about being too liberal, yep. and editorial page editors were looking for conservative columnists. So just as I was leaving the Senate staff, turns out Allen lost that year, which wasn't easy to do because uh, <laughs> we lost in Colorado while Nixon was carrying 49 states defeating McGovern, but yeah. we did lose. And uh, I became began writing for National Review in January '73 at a time when uh, Meg Greenfield, deputy editor of the Washington Post, 
said, why don't you also begin submitting columns to us? And uh, essentially, Sapphire, Pat Buchanan, and I became columnists at the same time. The Post wanted Sapphire lost and settled for me is what happened. Uh, uh, He ended up at the New York Times. That's right. In the fall of 73, the Post started the Washington Post Writers Group, chiefly to syndicate David Broder. The economics are such, it's just as simple and cheap to syndicate two as it is one, so they, they I was the second out, and now they've got a whole staple of people they've been syndicating now for more than 30 years. So you almost became a, a lawyer. You almost became a professor. You, well, I, you, I did become a professor. For a while. Yeah, and if uh, for two and a half years, and if Dirksen hadn't died in a timely manner, uh, I would be a retired college professor somewhere today. And the world would be a poorer place. I'm just thinking well, about I'd those. I'd be poorer, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, they're not. That's relevant. Um, but I was thinking the rest of us. The you, know, you think about the twists and turns, right? You you could have stayed in academic life. You you could have gone into politics in more with more enthusiasm. I'm glad you escaped that. Yeah, I couldn't have gone into politics in Canada. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Toronto, but. Uh, I might have moved around, and, and Lord knows where I wound up. And so you started uh, in '73. You started being syndicated by the Washington Post. Uh, they started syndicating me in '74. '74. Uh, I became Washington Editor of National Review in '73. And the rest is history. So along the way, you've added some TV work. Yeah, written some books. Published 13 books, written more than 4,000 columns, filled more pages of Newsweek than uh, anyone in the history of that magazine. Well, the 4,000 columns is kind of kind of remarkable. Um, let's let's talk about that for a minute. Do you have a routine? And and if so, have you had a routine from the beginning? Well, no, I don't have a routine. It uh, basically, I'm I'm usually I'm writing 123 columns a year. Two and a uh, five every two weeks, two for the newspaper each week, and every other week for Newsweek. I'm always writing book reviews, and I'm mean, usually at work on a book of some sort. So basically, I write all the time. And uh, I come in in the morning, I know what I want to write about. I've never been without a topic. In fact, I've always had in my wallet. Uh, half of a three-by-five card with a list of the, right now there are probably 15 topics on that I'm hoping to get to soon. It's interesting, when I first started as a columnist, I asked Bill Buckley the question that I now know is the question most frequently asked of a columnist. That is, how do you come up with things to write about? (laughs) And Bill's answer was, the world irritates me three times a week. (laughs) And to me, the world irritates, amuses, or uh, makes me curious five times every two weeks. And sometimes, presumably, even a little more often than that. So you, That's right. you have to do some filtering and editing. Sure. Yeah. And so you write, when something bugs you, you write it down that little, on that little card? That's right. Or yeah. when I see a topic, uh, for example, I'm got, I'm a, I've been planning now a trip to Kansas City for two reasons. Uh, the, the school system there closed about half its schools last September. Oh. And that matters in not just because of the general condition of urban education, but because Kansas City was the scene of a disastrous judicial intervention yep, in public schools where a judge ordered almost a billion dollars to be spent. 
a judge ordered taxes to be raised. I mean, a complete dislocation of governmental due process in an attempt to stem the problems of urban education by throwing money at them with predictable and cataclysmic results. Second, I want to go to see a Mr. Hernig, you probably know, who's a member of the Federal Reserve Board and uh, sort of a hawk on inflation. And since I don't think there are enough of those out there, I thought I'd go see him. And you'll write on both those things, on presumably. Uh, do you still enjoy it? Oh, yeah. I think that it's the sort of thing, it's like being a surgeon or a fighter pilot. If you don't enjoy it, you can't possibly do it. Uh, certainly can't do it well. That's right. And if you can't do it well, you shouldn't do anything. Yeah. Um, no, it, uh, it's, I, 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 by now, after all these years, I think in 750-word chunks. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I've got the rhythm, and it's, uh, it would be hard to stop. Uh, do they edit you at all? I have a very good editor who uh, tightens up a paragraph, says this, put the comma there, and uh, he's, he's extremely helpful. But does the, uh, does the paper, do you ever uh, fight with them? No, never. I mean, remember, I have 450 editors around the country. Uh, The Post uh, is not my paper other than that they syndicate the column. I haven't been in the Washington Post building for years. Uh, But no, the the papers can run it or not run it as they see fit. How about about Mr. Buckley? How about him? Did he give you any uh, advice now and then? uh, Yeah, periodically he'd say that's... A cliche, that's awkward. Uh, but he was exceedingly tolerant, and I'll tell you a story. When uh, I, I began writing for him in January 1973, the very week that Judge Sirica's draconian sentences imposed on James McCord, one of the Watergate burglars, caused him to crack and the unraveling of the cover-up began. I saw very early that uh, Nixon was guilty and that he was probably going to have to go. Uh, National Review subscribers, including the generous people whose contributions kept it afloat, like most small magazines that didn't turn a profit and it depended on contributions, they tended to rally around Nixon and to view this as a kind of attempt to, to overturn the 72 election. And I became a big problem for Bill. I cost him uh, contributors. And not once ever did he try to restrain uh, what I wrote about Nixon, to his great credit. So you said Nixon had to go, and he never said that you had to go. No, no, and he never (laughs) tried to temper my writing at all. They'd do a memo within National Review surveying uh, various things, and one one topic was had the simple headline on it, Letters to the Editor and George Will, because they're all the same thing. They're just people mad at me. But uh, as I say, Bill, with exquisite fairness, just uh, wrote it out. That's pretty cool. Partly because he, I mean, I think he suspected what was coming. And in fact, his brother, then Senator um, Jim Buckley, uh, was one of the first, if not the first Republican to say Nixon should resign. Yeah, I remember that. I think you're right. I think he was the first, if not one of the first. Has uh, has the process gotten any easier or harder? Uh, I don't really know. It, uh, uh, I think I write a little more complicated columns about more 
more sort of less opinion, more facts. There are plenty of opinions in my columns, but I think I'm not doing my job right if people don't learn things other than what I'm thinking. Uh, I don't think it's gotten easier or harder. It's a, it's a craft. It's not, it's not an art. I'm not painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling. It's a craft like making shoes. But uh, I think they're good shoes. Yeah, it's something like that anyway. Uh, well, let's turn to the country. Um, what are your thoughts? It was, you hear a lot of complaints that American politics has gotten uh, grosser, dirtier, more partisan. What's your take on that? Well, it certainly hasn't gotten more dirtier in the sense of dirty tricks and corruption. It's never been there's never been less of that. Uh, the ethics rules are, if anything, too too stringent now. Uh, the press scrutiny of dirty tricks and the public's intolerance for that is now at a high level. So in, in that sense, politics has never been cleaner. There's an inherent, I would go so far as to say, corruption in an administrative state that we have. The government is so big, it is so deeply involved everywhere you or it turns in the allocation of wealth and opportunity that the national pastime is no longer baseball, it is rent-seeking. And that just comes with the territory. You can't have it otherwise. And all these people who complain about, I mean, it's one of the crowning ironies of our day is that liberals, who are the great architects of the administrative state, are also the great complainers about lobbyists who are the natural consequence of the growth of the administrative state. When government decisions allocate great wealth and opportunity, great wealth will be spent on influencing government decision-making. It just follows as night to day. It's a market working. Uh, So in in, in that sense, uh, politics is a little more coarse than it used to be, but... What people are complaining about nowadays is the tone, yep. the the Negative. shrillness and the yeah. stridency. I would say two things. I'd say revisit the 1790s <laughs> when the Federalists said that if Jefferson is elected in 1800, he will confiscate the Bibles. And the Jeffersonians said if the Federalists win and if Adams wins in 1800, but we'll have a monarchy and the republic will be overthrown. Revisit the 1850s with the sectional crisis and the lowering clouds of civil war when Preston Brooks, congressman from South Carolina, walked across the Capitol to the Senate floor accompanied by a man carrying a gun so he could hold off any senators who might come to the aid of Charles Sumner and beat Charles Sumner, the senator from Massachusetts, nearly to death with his, Preston Brooks, cane. Uh, uh, Brooks was out for three years. The people of South Carolina, so pleased were they with Preston Brooks' behavior, they sent him an avalanche of canes. Uh, Revisit the Red Scare of the 1920s, the McCarthyism of the late 40s and early 50s. Uh, We go through these periods. we, uh, we don't have people in Congress anymore like James Eastland or Rankin of Mississippi and Talmadge of Georgia. Uh, as the country has become nicer and more civilized, uh, politics has, has also become so. What's different today is there are so many more megaphones for so many more ignoramuses, 
frankly. And the number of outlets ravenous for people to come on and talk and write have grown much faster than has the supply of talent. So you've got some pretty weak minds out there with strong larynxes. Yeah. Uh, well said. Shouting and carrying on, and, and the cacophony is, is uh, pretty unpleasant. But uh, most of these uh, people, be of the right or the left, have pretty small audiences, and their audiences are either true believers or masochists who want to be offended. Mm. And the vast majority of our 308 million people in this country are too busy doing other things to pay any attention to it. Right. No, it's a, it's a national pastime for a, a group of folks who like consuming it. And yep. it's not, uh, you're right, most of us are making a living, are, are taking care of our families, but they're, they're, they're the junkies, of which, uh, which there are plenty also who are paying attention. Um, you mentioned the country's gotten nicer. Uh, I think that's true. It feels like it's true. One measure of that would be what it's like to go to school when you're 11 or 12 years old or even 15 and you're different from the other kids in whatever way it is. It seems to me that, that those kind of things aren't as tough as they used to be. We're, we're more tolerant on that dimension. We're probably less tolerant elsewhere, but there's a certain civility to modern life that seems to be um, different. Is that well, true? Is it just imagination? No, is it a it's very true. Not especially, where did it come from? Why well, did especially that in the South, but not just in the South. It used to be routine that the majority insulted the minority in common daily behavior. Sometimes they didn't know they were insulting someone. They didn't tend to insult them, but they did, just by treating African Americans as, as uh, a caste and an inferior caste. It's much better to be gay in America today than it used to be. Yep. Uh, and all this is this is a good thing. Why no did question. that happen, you think? Well, it happened with regard to race because a bunch of extraordinarily brave and far-sighted people, Martin Luther King and a whole bunch of others, uh, decided it was time to put an end to it. The Second World War had a lot to do with this. The sheer unmerited good luck of this country and having someone like Martin Luther King come along to to uh, channel the the uh, growing anger and rage into constructive channels. Martin Luther King had the genius to say, we're not asking America to change, we're asking America to be true to its old commitments. He grounded the civil rights movement in our founding document, the Declaration of Independence. Uh, it was just an extraordinarily shrewd political man. Of course, it took a long time. It well did it now. I mean, it, 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 once it got started, it went awfully fast. Right. I'm just thinking we back to 1776. We had the Civil War, and then we had the, the collapse of Reconstruction and the rise of Jim Crow. But once the Civil Rights Movement got going after the Second World War, by 1975, we'd really changed the country. That's amazingly quick. Even that's I mean, that's 110 years from Appomattox, but it's... I'd say 30 years after the Second World War and 20 years after Brown versus Board of Education. That's amazing. So how much of that, you know, when I think about it, I like to think about it as the, when I think about government 
legislation on these kind of topics, I like to say that government can't change human beings. We need to change ourselves. Legislation often leads to unintended consequences. What do you think of the argument that civil rights legislation played a role in the changing of the attitudes, not not the behavior, the attitudes? Because the attitudes, it's easy to say people pay lip service or there's political correctness, but I think people act differently and, and have very different attitudes at heart than they did when say when I was growing up or, you know, 50 or 60 years ago? Of course legislation did. First of all, the Supreme Court uh, put its prestige on the line and in doing so acquired vastly new prestige with Brown versus Board of Education. Don't need to argue about the constitutional law, but that's just a fact that the country uh, uh, is broadly deferential to and wants to follow the Supreme Court. Second, uh, you can say all you want that you can't legislate morality, and you can say maybe you shouldn't legislate morality, but you certainly can. We did. We said from now on it is just not acceptable in America. We're going to stigmatize it with a law. Uh, we're going to make you people sit next to one another in school and go to the same swimming pools and go to movies together and eat at the same lunch counters. Get over it. And you know what? People got over it. That approach didn't work so well with other things, right? We, Not we with other things. Legislate but, against, say, taking drugs or prohibition. People didn't get over it. That's right. But, but there you were you were legislating against appetites. Yeah, that's true. This is legislating against a kind of moral behavior, and stigmatizing it worked. Well, stigma is very powerful. I just I wonder how much of that is cultural versus obviously they work together. The legislative they work together, part, cultural. Yes. It fascinates me. I'm not a fan of political correctness uh, at all, and yet I think there are some benefits from being overly obsessed with um, taking care not to hurt people, hurt people's feelings, et cetera. It probably makes a difference. Um, let's talk about the state of – we talk about the state of politics. Let's turn to oh, – actually, before we do move on, I want to ask you about rent-seeking, a, a topic that's closely related to – George Mason University and the work of Gordon Tullock and others here in the in the area called public choice. You said it. You, it's. You, I don't know if you said it was ironic. Uh, I think you said it was ironic that people who support the expansion of the administrative state, people to the left of center, uh, also res, are against or resent or are surprised, perhaps or horrified at uh, all of the above. Yeah, at the profusion of rent seeking as people seek to take advantage of the large administrative state. Uh, how do you explain that attitude, or, or can you? Well, it's it's just that uh, people have strangely bifurcated minds, and uh, they're reluctant to see the bad consequences of their good intentions. People are heavily invested, uh, liberals are particularly, in the self-image that they are uniquely uh, disinterested and public-spirited. And they look around and they see this kind of the the, uh, the seamy side of Washington, the K Street side, if you will. And they say, gosh, how did that happen? And they don't want to say it happened because of me. Of course, they'd like to say, I think, to put the best shine on it, that um, well, people would just behave themselves. This wouldn't happen. Right? <laughs> well, yeah, but people won't behave themselves. What? People won't behave themselves. Yeah, well, people problem. are as the founders those cold-eyed, clear-sighted gentlemen understood are interested creatures, and they will pursue their self-interests. And you try, therefore, to create a government with, as Madison said, 
Republican remedies for the diseases to which republics are susceptible. And uh, one of those is faction and self-interestedness going too far and being incited by the opportunities provided by a government that simply has too much to say over the allocation of wealth and opportunity. So I share your worldview uh, with the founders that people are self-interested, being, a, being an economist. Of course, I also think they're altruistic at times, many times. But it's interesting that my uh, hope, and maybe I'm being as unrealistic and idealistic as any, uh, as any liberal of the modern variety, my hope is that people might actually start to feel ashamed of violating their oath to uphold the Constitution. And I can imagine a world where we went back to a role – it's a faraway world, but I can imagine a world where, far, where government did what it was allowed to do by the Constitution and not much more than that. That's the world I'd like to live in, and I can imagine we could get to that world through convincing people that that's a world they want to live in. Am I any different from the guy on the left who says, well, lobbyists should just start to feel ashamed of themselves? <laughs> no, you've got – you have a little more – realism than they do. Not a lot more, but a little more. Uh, Why? Well, look at the Tea Party movement. The Tea Party movement is a genuine, spontaneous combustion of people uh, doing what Americans do. You know, we are a relentlessly forward-looking and forward-leaning people, but our politics always has a retrospective cast to it because people take their bearings from the founding moment, from the revolution and the declaration that launched it and from the Constitution. The Tea Party movement takes its bearings from something that happened in 1773, for Pete's sake. And it, it's, a, it's a Madisonian recoil from the what Governor Mitch Daniels of Indiana has called the shock and awe statism of the Obama administration, which indicates a pretty strong residual uh, Respect for the Madisonian project of limited government. Although the, you know the parody of the Tea Party movement is you know, keep the government off out of my Medicare payment. I understand. There is a certain unwillingness to have one's own ox gored. No question. And the easy part is uh, is the low hanging fruit. You know, get rid of the corporation for public broadcasting. Well, of course, get rid of that. But that's a rounding error on the GM yeah, bailout. I know it's or earmarks, which you know, the trivial. Yeah, you know, um, we could even throw in the Amtrak subsidy. The, you know, there, there's so many little. They don't add up to much, even when you add them all together. Right. Um, so. Let, let's talk about the um, the Constitution. Um, does it does it have any role to play in modern American political public policy, political life, public policy? Sure, it does because there is this great residual respect for it, more respect for it than understanding of it. But the respect isn't is not a negligible force. Uh, people do have to, at the end of the day, and this is another cheap party achievement. Uh, people are now reminded that we are a government, in theory, of delegated, enumerated, and limited powers. And once you can reinsert that vocabulary into the national political argument, you've made progress. No doubt. I guess it will remain to be seen what the progress will be. But I think, you know, as we're recording this, we're in the middle of some sort of unknowable transition, say, in Egypt – 
And I think there's a tremendous amount of sympathy among the average American. Just We love seeing a dictator leave. Um, we don't like seeing what often comes in his, uh, in his place. And uh, democracy in Egypt might not be a very pleasant thing. With, without, Democracy with, in Pakistan could be a disaster, but uh, still, it's 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 uh, it's inspiriting to see this happen. No doubt here, about but it. here at home, uh, we, we we have this. Uh, we are heading in the Supreme Court with the coming case of the constitutionality of the health care mandate uh, to decide whether there are any limits to the power that a government can derive under the power to regulate interstate commerce. And if there aren't, then the Madisonian project is finished. There is no limited government. So this case, while not quite at the Dred Scott Brown versus Board of Education level, is going to be just a cut below that as a constitutional moment. Yeah, the budget was just unveiled. Uh, The Obama administration, I think uh, it's 3.73. I don't know why I used that three. Just for humor, uh, it, it's almost four trillion dollars. It's twenty five percent or so of the of GDP. There, there are plenty of things the government can do that are considered constitutional that are that are uh, disturbing. So I don't, I don't know. I worry. I worry a lot about it. Well, it's, the old, it's an old axiom that what's alarming in, in Washington isn't what's done that's illegal, but what's done that's legal. Yeah, it's kind of a. An extraordinary thing to be at a time when the government's grown by 25% in nominal terms in the last three years, and we're arguing over $100 billion in cuts, which exactly. is 3.7 to 3.6 yeah. instead of 2.7. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, what about the rule of law? Talk about that, and you talked about – you mentioned Mitch Daniels' shock and awe at the expansion of the state. The last – Starting with the Bush administration, really, and the the TARP and the um, and the role of the Federal Reserve, we've seen in our lifetime, to my eyes, an unprecedented expansion of discretionary government power, especially put forward by people who aren't elected, like the chair of the Fed. Uh, what do you feel about that? Well, fifty years ago, we had a hundred senators and four hundred and thirty-five. Congressman, today we have 100 senators and 435 congressmen, mm. and the business, the busyness of the government has increased 20-fold. Now, obviously, since not even Congress can lengthen the number of hours in a day. Uh, they tried. They, they, did, they did mandate a 13-month year once to get yeah, around the budget problem. <laughs> but uh, this being so, it is an iron law that as the government expands, the rule of law contracts. It does so because Congress winds up, instead of passing laws that actually bind people and direct the federal agencies, it passes sentiments. We should have clean air. We should have maximum feasible this or that. And off we go to the rulemaking process. Riskless financial institutions. Yes, exactly. And and all the rulemaking that is done and recorded in the Federal Register makes the Federal Register much more urgent reading than the Congressional Record, which is a bad sign for self-government. Uh, but, again, this is, this is the progressive aim. The progressive aim was to concentrate more and more power in Washington, more and more Washington power in the executive branch, and concentrate in the executive branch more and more experts. Uh, today we call them czars. And the experts were to administer the government 
top-down to prosperity and rationality. And Congress would, was intended to be marginalized and made into a, essentially a bystander. That process, the rulemaking process, what I find fascinating about it is that I think for people who don't pay attention, who are not junkies, uh, political junkies, uh, they're amazed at this. It's, it's kind of a secret. It's not a secret in the sense that it's hidden. It's just not well known. So, for example, the, the recent health care bill, I think a lot of people were paying attention to that, fortunately. But uh, the, the financial reform, so-called reform of Dodd-Frank, both of those cases – very little of the legislation, as you said, was legislated. It was just left up to future slash negotiations, rulemaking. Right. And that process um, – I'll just take the Dodd-Frank as an example. You know, I just have a feeling that Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and Bank of America and Citigroup are going to be a little more attentive in, in that process than, than, than I'm going to be. So why would you expect it to turn out to serve the public interest? Well, this is uh, someone recently. I wish I could remember who has written something saying that the administrative state is inherently an engine of inequality because those who are most able to manipulate the administrative process are the wealthy, the well-connected, the intense, the compact interest groups that are. Uh, concentrate their attention and the legal talent they can hire on manipulating this process, whereas the uh, the unorganized uh, mass of Americans are simply not involved. And they hear the sentiments, which which are lovely. Yeah, I mean it's the old it's the old point about the law that governs Washington is the law of uh, concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. That's why we have sugar quotas. Yeah. 308 million Americans eat sugar. A few thousand Americans grow sugar. We have sugar quotas. Why? Well, it's, again, concentrated benefits, dispersed costs. I probably told the story in this program before, but when I, when I mentioned my distress over that fact to a congressional staffer and I said, I think I used uh, hundreds of people grow sugar, he said, well, it's more like a dozen. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. it's even more depressing. Yeah, exactly. uh, it's, it's a handful, almost maybe two handfuls on a foot of full, a tofu. Few toes of families um, who are involved in that business, making an enormous amount of money. Um, so why is it you – know, when, when you think of it that way, which I do from time to time, in the, I think of the glass as half empty, and I get depressed, and you know, I, that's what irritates me, and I write about it. it. Is it really just half full? Is it surprising how little of that actually takes place compared to, say, Argentina maybe or some other place? Well, it, it is – Little compared with Argentina. Again, we are uh, we are healthily indignant about the corruption we cause. Uh, it may be a little bit foolish and contradictory, but that's the way it is. Second, this is a transaction cost of democracy. Uh, there is, as Adam Smith famously and rightly said, much ruin in a nation. Yeah. Uh, get over it again. This is this is. Uh, it's not, it ain't pretty, and it's untidy, but it beats the heck out of um, Chavez, Putin, yeah. Berlusconi, Sarkozy, for that matter, all of these people. So in the academic world, sometimes I think about the distinction between Milton Friedman and George Stigler. George Stigler was in the get-over-it mode. It's just something to study and 
and laugh at and um, at just the way it is. And Milton Friedman said, I'm going to tilt at those windmills. And he yep. and he did, though. He made a difference. So the, the truth must lie somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about the um, – let's talk a little bit about the economic future of the country. Um, the, there's a train wreck coming. I used to naively think, well, we'll, we'll muddle through. We'll fix it. Now I'm not so confident. I don't know whether I've gotten cynical or less naive or whatever. The, I don't know what the right mix is. But um, we do have this demographic problem. We've made these promises. They're mandatory, uh, our spending on Social Security and Medicare. They can't be changed. But, of course, they will be. will be. They will be. So. One of my pet peeves is I, I want to get rid of the phrase discretionary spending. Me too. <laughs> it's all discretionary. Absolutely. With the possible exception of the six percent that is debt service, yeah. that we really That's have no point. choice. That's a we, we we have to pay that or all the sky will fall. But uh, social security is mandatory until we choose at our discretion to make it not mandatory. So we we really ought to quit using the phrase. No, I, I agree with that. So, but it's very difficult and unpleasant for a politician to stand up and say um, we're living beyond our means, like. Uh, a parent can do it. A parent can say to his kids, you know, we, we bought a house we can't afford. We bought a car we can't afford. We sent you on to the schools you, we can't afford, and um, our vacation's too long. And so next year we're doing X, Y, and Z, and it's not as much fun as it used to be, and that just – but we don't have a choice. And that's – you know, may, maybe the mom and dad discuss it among themselves. There's some – maybe the, some of the kids complain about they really like the vacation, and so you keep that and you sell the car, but – it gets wrangled out. How are we going to wrangle this out, uh, given the those fundamental incentives uh, of politics? Well, that's right. I mean, think uh, we'll what the family it? doesn't have is its own fiat currency. <laughs> we have yeah. fiat currency, so yeah. the government can make more of it. Um, that's one way to get out of it. That we uh, be one of them. Look, democracies act about difficult problems under the lash of necessity. That is, when they really have no other choice. We're not quite there yet. Uh, the British uh, listened to Churchill without really hearing him uh, through the 1930s. They finally got serious when Hitler got to the Channel Ports, and we're not at a Channel Ports moment yet. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and so looking at, say, Greece or um, what might be coming in Spain, and we're continuing to – now this will be, I think, the fourth year in a row we have a deficit over a trillion dollars – do you think there's going to be a showdown over that as a way well, to force look, the moment? Uh, there are all kinds of uh, – the price of oil is going up. The price of cotton is going up. The price of corn is going up. And most important, very soon, the price of money has to go up. And once interest rates go up, then the, the structural costs of this borrowing are going to be severe. Uh, I, I think the recovery we have today is very fragile. Housing prices are still declining. We have a, a structural unemployment problem uh, brought on by the fact uh, the combination of inadequate K through 12 education plus immigration, and uh, we're in danger of having a permanent submerged underclass. That uh, I mean, these are all huge problems. That uh, that upward social mobility is becoming, which used to be the the great promise of American life is becoming problematic, and uh, so we, we, I, I share your your 
forebodings about the times we're heading into. I'm not quite as worried about some of those things, but I, I worry more about the political process and its ability to cope with that and its ability to say no. And as you say, we get to a point where sometimes where you, you have to say no. You don't have a choice. Uh, when you're the world's reserve currency, it's a lot easier. Uh, we probably won't default on our debt because we can inflate our way out of it. We That will handicap our ability to do some creative things down the road, but I maybe mean, that's a good thing. Um, let's um, – Let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, what the world of journalism, which is your one measure of your bailiwick, you have a few, but the world of journalism's changed a lot, obviously, in the last five to ten years. Um, do you feel that in your perch, and where do you think that's going to go? Well, I do a little bit, but uh, I haven't been impacted as much as some people have. Uh, Thirty years ago. At the dinner hour in America, 80% of all television sets in use were tuned to ABC, CBS, NBC. That oligopoly is shattered beyond repair, and that's a good thing. Now, it's been shattered by some pretty weird people in some cases, uh, but uh, on balance, it's just an excellent thing that the country doesn't gather around those three little campfires uh, every evening. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the future of print journalism is. I tend to think people are going to want to always hold a newspaper, but I must say it. I get up at 5 every morning, so I'm up when uh, I hear something go slap on the sidewalk out front of my house, and I do wonder how long they can keep chopping down trees in Canada, turning them into paper, covering the paper with ink, giving it to a, uh, an immigrant in a SUV at 3 in the morning to get that onto my front sidewalk. They're good at it, too, by the way. It's amazing how good they are. It, 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 it is. It is amazing. I mean, I, I, art. I, I, I always ask young people when I meet them, I mean, people under 30, do you read a newspaper? I haven't found one who reads a newspaper in 10 years, I think. Yeah. you have an iPad? Uh, I was given one, and my son stole it. It's, um, it's a pretty pleasant way to... Keep up with the world. Yep, I think it's. Um, yep. I think it's the some version of that is the way of the future, and there will always be a, a market for people who can use words. It just isn't going to be the same kind of market, sure. it seems to me. No, I'm. I'm not. Uh, I don't want to stand athwart history and cry halt to creative destruction. This is uh, the iPod was invented, I think, in 2001 at which point there were 80,000 Americans working in music stores. Ten years later, there were 20,000 Americans working in music stores. But uh, the other 60,000 are working somewhere else. Yeah. Although this particular month, it's hard to find a job, but there will be there, – when, when the overall economy gets healthier, it'll, it'll get easier. Uh, how about you uh, and your personal philosophy, your political philosophy – have you changed? Do you feel you've changed in a way you can, you're comfortable talking about over the last 5, 10, 20, 30 years? I'm a years? little more libertarian than I used to be, uh, a little less confident of government's uh, skills or good motives than I used to be. I was somewhat radicalized by McCain-Feingold. Why? It, it never occurred to me that Congress, the political class, would have the audacity to pass legislation controlling the quantity, content, and timing of political speech about the political class, or that the Supreme Court would then affirm it. Now, the Supreme Court's been backing off from that bit by bit. Yeah, a little. But uh, 
McCain Feingold did uh, resensitize me to the dangers of of uh, government power. And one, we talked a little bit about red seeking and public choice and how we view politicians. Um, somebody said to me today, "Well, I think Obama thinks he's got to keep the job market in the front of his mind, and that's why he's got such a big budget." Because, and my first reaction was. I don't think he has any idea what he, what he, what economics is about. He just thinks it's good to spend money because it helps his friends, and he certainly has a good excuse for it. I raise that as an example of most. I think most people, non-economists certainly, uh, non-political scientists, look at politicians as earnest folk trying to do their best, and I have trouble doing that. Um, so when I watch the State of the Union and I watch them jumping up and down, applauding, and the president. Saying nothing for three hour for an hour, I find it hard to take it seriously. Uh, you've seen a lot of them. Uh, I'm not asking about this particular one because to me they're mostly pretty darn similar. Uh, do you can you look at politics as anything other than spectacle, or or do you do you find yourself getting involved in rooting from time oh, to time? Oh, I get involved in my root. Sure, I mean the the um, uh, the American project is. Dear to my heart, it's a, it's a great story, our country, and I like to see it treated with more respect than it often is. Uh, so, no, I, t- I take all this all this seriously. When I quit taking it seriously, I'll do something else. Who are the politicians that you respect over the years? Uh, some of them, Scoop Jackson, uh, for his prescience and steadfastness on the Cold War, when yeah. his his Democratic senator from Washington as his party veered to the left. He didn't. Uh, my best friend, towards, particularly toward the end of his life, was Pat Moynihan, uh, a very rare kind of intellectual in politics. Uh, it's, a sh- it's a short list. Is that, you want to throw in a couple more? <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, uh, these are all very different people. I'm, I'm very fond of Mitch McConnell, who's a, he came to Washington a long time ago as a Senate aide. He's been around the Senate forever. He's an institution man. He, he knows the rules. He knows the, the limits of the place. And he's just, a, again, he's a craftsman. Going back to the change you've, you've mentioned in yourself, uh, becoming more libertarian, uh, you mentioned McCain-Feingold. How much, uh, how much has foreign policy played a role in that? Because you, you were very early on, or I don't know how early on, but you were a, a very outspoken critic of some of the Bush administration's activities in the war. And um, I think some people who saw you as uh, – was, you were being traitorous to the conservative side at the time. Now I think most people would say he wasn't much of a conservative. Well, I was – uh, my credentials were pretty good because I was a cold warrior in good standing. Yeah. Uh, hence, Scoop Jackson is one of my political pinups. Uh, I thought the Soviet Union was – dangerous right to the end. I thought Gorbachev was more dangerous than Ronald Reagan did. I think I was partly right about that. I mean, people forget that Gorbachev's aim was never what happened, was never to see the end of the Soviet Union. He wanted to modernize one-party communist rule in the Soviet Union. Uh, and if he'd succeeded, it would have been alarming. Now, it turns out, I now understand, but he couldn't succeed. The Soviet Union died of ignorance. That is, it not having a price system, it couldn't know what anything should cost. Yeah. And uh, 
they came up with a manufacturing process called value subtraction. That is, they <laughs> they produced shoes worth less than the materials that went into them. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I'm much clearer about that now than I was at the time. But um, some of my conservative friends who are clear-eyed about the limits of our government working its will in this country tend to lose that clarity regarding this country as it tries to work its will abroad. I, what I find remarkable about that is, besides that inconsistency, which I've, I think I've been guilty of it in the past, I'm less, I hope, guilty of it now, but besides that, it, it, I find it rather striking when you read accounts of, the, of say, the war in Iraq uh, for people on the ground and, and what we asked and still ask our soldiers to do uh, it's not what they're trained to do and not what they're well-suited to do. It's a rather it's not remarkable – what they enlisted to do either. Right. Um, you know, they're really good at killing people, and they're good at doing it with minimal casualties to themselves. Mm-hmm. Asking them to make friends seems like a very strange mandate for them. I don't understand it. It is, and, but if you're, if, if you're going to be doing counterinsurgency with large forces, that's what you're going to wind up doing. Yeah. And they persist. Um, it's interesting. They um, they put their head down and they try to do it, it seems, yep. um, which is an interesting – they have their own culture. The, the military culture is fascinating. But um, I find it interesting how few have said, what the heck is this about? But, and they keep trying. And, uh, well, enough of trivialities. Let's talk about something important. Let's talk about baseball, which I know is one of your loves and one of mine as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Spring is here, baseball-wise, so all's right with the world. Uh, what is right and wrong with the game of baseball? What are you excited about, and what are you unexcited about? Well, I'm, I'm, I think this is a, baseball is fundamentally very healthy right now. People pouring through the turnstiles. Uh, much more competitive balance than we used to have. Uh, for 10 consecutive years, the previous World Series winner has not won the World Series. Uh, that uh, just four short of the record. We had 14 years from 79 through, I guess, 93 when uh, you didn't have a repeat winner of the World Series. And very few New York Yankee winning World Series in That's this right. which is even more important. Well, the Yankees demonstrate mm-hmm. the declining utility of dollars in baseball. Yeah. We've seen it in politics. Otherwise, Meg Whitman would be governor of California. But uh, <laughs> baseball's basic economic model predates... The internet, television, radio, uh, airplanes, the internal combustion engine. It goes back to the middle of the 19th century when teams were loosely federated individual enterprises. And baseball has slowly been going from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution. That is to, used to be said, the United States are, became the United States is. Major League Baseball is now becoming one entity with 30 partners in it. And a more rational economic model. I was on the, I was one of four members with Paul Volcker, George Mitchell, and Rick Levin, the president of Yale, who was an economist, on the four person Blue Ribbon Commission on Baseball Economics in the late 90s. Our report became the owner's collective bargaining position in 2002. And what we did was uh, study the roots of competitive imbalance in baseball's economics. And the problem was, to put it really simply, 
far too much was predictable simply in terms of the number of television sets in yeah. a team's area. Sure. Because local broadcast revenues are terribly important in baseball in a way that they are not in, tel- in uh, the NFL. Uh, the NFL shares, right? The NFL the- gets... A, the lion's share of its revenues from national TV contracts, and they share it equally. So you can have a team in a little town in northern Wisconsin can win the Super Bowl. Yeah. So baseball has had to, to tweak and nudge and fiddle with its economic model, uh, but uh, it's done so successfully. Yeah, I never thought about it. It's actually one of the great um, innovations of the late 19th, early 20th century called the League. Right, what a what a great um, and remarkable innovation that is. Rather than just oh, let's play today. Yep. Uh, you agree to abide by a set of rules, and you really, as you say, you really create. People misunderstand what baseball is it, or any sport. It's really, uh, yeah. It's one. It, there's one firm. It's the whole thing, and yep. and they jockey for position within in in very controlled and and um, rigid ways that differ across sports. And uh, what's what are the biggest um, Changes in your lifetime in baseball that you that you think about and uh, that you care about, things that you wish were different or that you're glad that they're the way they are? Well, since the Second World War, the three biggest events were Jackie Robinson, Free Agency, and Camden Yards. Jackie Robinson brought an entire wave of talent in. A second wave came from Latin America, yep. Dominican Republic, etc. Uh, free Agency... Uh, not only was it extended to baseball players a fairly basic American right, which is the right modified and limited by the, the needs of a league, as you mentioned it, but the right to negotiate the terms of employment with the employer of your choice, yep. and did not have at all the bad consequences that were predicted. And Camden Yards... Uh, you know, we conservatives are always said, told you can't turn the clock back. Sure you can. We did. <laughs> we went back to uh, the old-style ballparks after those foolish ballparks built in the 60s and 70s as dual purpose for football and baseball and good for neither. In uh, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, St. Louis, uh, we went back to ballparks that took advantage of the fact that baseball is the most observable of team games. Uh, meaning? Meaning we have nine people thinly spread over an eye-pleasing green field, and you ought to bring the fans as close as possible to the action and let them look at it. Yeah, yeah I totally agree with you, of course. Um, I'm a Red Sox fan, and Fenway Park is probably, with Wrigley Field, the, the, the best place, I think, to watch a, a baseball game. Partly because the foul territory is so small. Well, I, I'll tell you, the best place right now is Pittsburgh. You haven't been there. It's a great place. How do you feel about the Nationals' new stadium? I think it's fine. It's uh, you know there are limits to how how often you can reinvent Camden Yards, but uh, it's a, it's a perfectly uh, serviceable, good new ballpark. Yeah, that's my take. It's a little bit charmless, but it's a it's yeah. a very nice place to watch a game in terms of sight lines and closeness to the field. Um, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal today uh, saying that talking about sports was off is perhaps more fun than watching it or participating. One of the act- your remarks about free agency remind me that one of the benefits of 
free agency is the possibility of teams changing their composition quickly, which generates a lot of talk radio entertainment. Maybe not much else, but it it does seem – besides, the fairness thing matters to me, uh, letting people uh, negotiate their own contract and where they work. Um, Well, we're almost out of time. Let's move to perhaps the most important question, which is the the Chicago Cubs. You're a, a lifelong fan, right? Yes. Um, what's your earliest Cubs memory? Oh, memory go of going, going up uh, in the late, in the early 1950s, 51, 52, something like that, and uh, going up from Champaign, Illinois by car <clears throat> and seeing Hank Sauer and Phil Cavaretta and Andy Pafko and people like this. And it wasn't until about 54 that the Cubs got a great player in my lifetime. Uh, and uh, Ernie Banks, so it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, Banks, and then eight other guys, and then you'd get Banks up again. Yeah, heck of a player. Yep. And so, what are your, um, what's your forecast for this year? Well, I think the Cubs will finish if they have a good year from everybody. They can hold on to fourth. Mm. Cincinnati's uh, getting better because they're a young team getting more experience. The Cardinals are got a little more talent, and the Brewers are much improved. So the Cubs will thank God for the Pirates uh, <laughs> and can probably hold off Houston, but I'm not even <laughs> confident of that. Do you, um, do you get pleasure from the season as a Cubs fan, even when they finish fourth? Yeah, because I'm a baseball guy, and I do. I still do work for Major League Baseball, and we get the Major League package on my Directv, and uh, so I get all the games, and I can come home from the Nationals or the Orioles games, and I've got season tickets at both places, and turn on the West Coast games. So, uh, so I'm ready. You mentioned uh, that Blue Ribbon Commission, uh, and you've you've spent time with a lot of great managers and baseball players and books you've written. How would you rate those thrills relative to the political arena? Because you've you've rubbed shoulders with a lot of those are pretty different sets of people, and they have things in common, obviously. Yeah. Want to compare them? Well, the uh, politicians and athletes are both very competitive. Uh, that's how they get to where they are. No one floats up to the big leagues. No one floats into the Senate. Uh, so the, there's there is that competitive nature there are rules to the game and in a sense they're both games and in a sense they're both not games uh but uh i i suppose i get more pleasure certainly from baseball and who do you respect in that world in baseball yeah but Selig, i think he's been a he's, he's become a very good friend of mine he's a tremendously successful commissioner taking a lot of criticism well, he has come to the territory, but since he became acting commissioner in 92, I think 20 new ballparks, revenue sharing, peaceful labor settlement the last time out, uh, interleague play. Uh, oh, horrors. Oh, I'm not against <laughs> interleague play. I'm all for that. But, How about the uh, DH? Oh, I'm against the DH, oh, but we're stuck great. with it. Oh, great. <laughs> we're, we're stuck with it because uh, the un- the uh, Players Association won't. It's a very highly paid position because it's usually an aging star, yeah. and uh, therefore it's not going away. But it's not coming to the National League, is and it? And it's not coming, no. 
Yeah, that's, it's an interesting thing, right? It's, it's one league, but there is some room for a little bit of creativity there. Well, it, 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 it would be possible, I think, to get rid of the, the uh, DH if you expanded the number of roster spots. Yeah. If you could give the union uh, 27, that would be two dots, 60 more major league places, and you might get it that way. And you might have to if if you ever if we ever had 15, uh, 15 teams in each league, which we might someday do, yeah, but then you'd have to have interleague play all year round. And the idea of juggling the DH then becomes yeah. difficult. What about steroids? Um, that is, uh, I think it's seen as a black mark in the Selig's. Well, it's terrible. Well, it's a black mark. But, and for the but, game. So but, uh, what are your in, thoughts? In fact... The, the Players Association would not address it, and it's a collective bargaining issue. Yeah, so, no. so there was very little he could do. Do you think it's still um, going on? No, I don't. I think uh, such are the rewards of of uh, psychic and economic rewards of athletic excellence. There will always be incentives to cheat, and there will be chemists who will try and help you cheat, and there'll be a ongoing race forever between the good chemists and the bad chemists. The good chemists trying to devise tests to catch the bad chemists. But uh, I think right now the good guys are winning. My guest today has been George Will. George, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Enjoyed it with you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.